The Way Out Podcast, episode 25. I made a conscious decision that I wanted nothing to do with this God. And it was the idea of the God that I had taken from the Catholic Church, which was this damning, hateful God that sat up on a cloud, chiseling in stone all the bad things I'd done in life. And if you were a bad person, bad things would happen to you. If you were good, good things would happen. I made a conscious decision to stop going to Alcoholics Anonymous at that point and to kind of turn my back on this whole thing. Then that event happened in 2010. I was with this other woman. And like I said, I came home and everything was gone. And I was so desperate at that moment. I had a moment of clarity and that voice just said, if I can get back to Alcoholics Anonymous and do what they ask me to do, I'm sure my life can get better. I had never heard anyone stand at the podium and say, at 20 years sober, I'm now 20 years when I lost the house, everything is going to fall apart. Right. They all stand up there and they say, I'm traveling the world. I love, life my, is I love my wife. <laughs> the kids right. like me. I got a good dog. I got a great life. And the life country song's wonderful. playing backwards for them. Yeah. Exactly. And that wasn't the experience that I was having. And I was miserable and I just wanted to die. I had, I had a dry bottom in Alcoholics Anonymous mm -hmm. at 20 years sober. And it was far more painful at that particular time than it was at any other time in my life. Welcome. Thank you for joining us on this week's installment of The Way Out, sharing stories from people just like you who have recovered from alcoholism and other addictions. The Way Out does not speak on behalf of, nor are we affiliated with any 12-step organization. Our purpose is to share with you, one episode at a time, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. The Way Out is sponsored by Transitions Daily. Would you like to receive the most popular AA daily devotions free in one distribution? Transitions Daily delivers daily devotions from 24 hours a day, AA thought for the day, daily reflections, big book quote, just for today, as Bill sees it, plus more. You can get our distribution daily via email, private Facebook group, or Twitter. Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information. Don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Make sure to check out the new official blog of The Way Outcast at www.wayoutcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at The Way Out Podcast. Help us get the message out that lifelong recovery from alcoholism and addiction is possible by giving us a five-star rating on Stitcher and iTunes and following us on Twitter. And don't forget to tell your friends about The Way Out Podcast. The Way Out Podcast is on now. I'm your host, Charlie L. This week, we'll hear the second part of Christopher's interview where he shares about a dry bottom in Alcoholics Anonymous after 20 years sober and how he got through and reached a new level of recovery. So in 2004, I had that experience, and I, I made a conscious decision that I wanted nothing to do with this God. And it was the idea of the God that I had taken from the Catholic Church, which was this damning, hateful God that sat up on a cloud, chiseling in stone all the bad things I'd done in life. And if you were a bad person, bad things would happen to you. If you were good, good things would happen. And you deserve them, clearly, right? I clearly deserve them. So I wanted nothing to do with that idea of God. 
And so I made a conscious decision to stop going to Alcoholics Anonymous at that point and to kind of turn my back on this whole thing. So for the next four or five years, I probably, I might have gone to maybe 12 meetings in between. And um, then that event happened in 2010. I was with this other woman. And like I said, I came home and everything was gone. And I was so desperate at that moment. I had a moment of clarity and that voice just said, if I can get back to Alcoholics Anonymous and do what they ask me to do, I'm sure my life can get better. I mean, what have I got to lose at that point? Everything is gone. Right. Again, Uh, I mean, this uh, is... Again. Again, right? So it's not just that everything is gone, but everything's gone again. Again. Right. And um, eventually uh, I, I had lost my job. And I was trying to rent out play, uh, some rooms in this beautiful home I had. And I, I can't even get people to answer the ads. Mm-hmm. I guess I wasn't supposed to be there in retrospect, but I lost the house. Now I, I've got, uh, so I've got, you know, my AA luggage. You know what that is? It's, it's green garbage bags. So I've got five green garbage bags <laughs> packed with my clothes sitting in the back of my truck. And uh, and I end up sleeping in the parking lot at, at the... 2218, which is the Minneapolis, uh, Alano Society of Minneapolis. And I'm sleeping in the parking lot wondering how this happened to a nice guy like me. Right. I had never heard anyone stand at the podium and say, at 20 years sober, come now 20 years when I lost the house, everything is going to fall apart. Right. They all stand up there and they say, I'm traveling the world. I love, life my, is a I love my wife. That's the kids right. like me. I got a good dog. I got a great life. And the life country song's wonderful. playing backwards for exactly. them. Yeah. Exactly. And that wasn't the experience that I was having. And I was miserable and I just wanted to die. But I had this beautiful little child I had to live for. So I was willing and I walked in and I said, I will do anything not to continue to live my life and feel the way that I've been feeling. And there has to be something that I missed. So you reached that point of desperation, not in active alcoholism, but you actually reached a point of desperation in sobriety. I reached it twice. I reached that point. I'm, I think that I had actually reached that point when I walked into Alcoholics Anonymous. I was so sick and tired of my life that I had reached a moment of desperation, even though I was willing to deny it to myself. But yeah, I had, I had a dry bottom in Mm -hmm. Alcoholics Anonymous Mm -hmm. at 20 years sober, and it was far more painful at that particular time than it was at any other time in my life. And I started going to these meetings, and I met this this guy, and his name is Dave, and you just had to know Dave. He was an old cantankerous guy, and David had an operation early in his life that wasn't successful, and they had nicked part of his spinal cord. Okay. So f- from the time he was in his, like, 20s or 30s, he had to walk with a walker. Sure. And uh, Dave lived at the Salvation Army, and I don't mean he was down on his luck and occasionally stayed there. This is where he lived. Every night he would go to the Salvation Army. Got it. And so he's walking around and, you know, uh, I'm looking at him. He's got long fingernails that he doesn't cut. He's dirty. He's smelly. He's got stringy, greasy, long hair. Mm -hmm. And he looks at me and then this gruff voice, he says, you need to go to this four-step workshop to get past your anger. (laughs) (laughs) I kid you not. And and I'm sitting there thinking, I looked at him, I thought, well, you cantankerous old prick. Maybe you ought to go yourself, you (laughs) know. But I go to the workshop and... 
I'm sitting there, and of course, I've I've got I've got these books that have nothing to do with Alcoholics Anonymous, and I've got these these sheets that you know they've got little check box marks, and I, I want to look like I got all my stuff together. Your right? ducks in a row, right? Exactly. And I I, I want to share this because it's kind of funny to tell you how hateful we get. Mm-hmm. I walk into the room, and a man named Bob who helped run the workshop I didn't know at the time, but he's setting up the room. Now Bob's an older man. And he's sitting there, and he's got on this blue and black and gray flannel shirt. He's got on black nylon pants. Already I'm judgmental. Who the right. hell wears nylon no. pants, right? Right. And he's got on these, these black tennis shoes, and he's got on white socks. Uh, <laughs> That's a major fashion faux pas. Exactly. Really. Now, I had gone to sit up in the front. Now, at this point, I'm 20 years sober. I've got so, so much knowledge in my head to share. Obviously, everyone wants to hear it, so really? i got to sit up in front so I can be part of this panel to discuss this. You're a everybody. virtual... Like a plethora exactly. of Alcoholics Anonymous knowledge. Exactly. And um, so Bob very kindly said, well, Rick and I sit up here as part of the presentation. You're welcome to sit off over to the side here. And I was angry. Sure. How dare you? Don't you know who I am? <laughs> I got 20 years sober. How dare you not let me sit up here and present all this knowledge that I have that I have no no idea how to work, but I can tell you. Righteous indignation exactly. is one of my... <laughs> One of my favorite, used to be one of my favorite go-tos. So character assassination, immediately I start looking at that and white socks. Who the hell wears white socks with black nylon pants and shoes? You obviously don't know what you're doing in life. I need to teach you these things. I hate you. Right. <laughs> Bob and I to this, are, to this day are good friends and we talk about that in the workshop uh, because it shows, you know, wh- how hateful... I am at this point. Yeah. Immediately, I don't get my way, and I want to pick him apart and just hate him. Yep. And um, so I, I'm sitting in the workshop for a couple of weeks, and they're going through this very through chapter five very slowly through the third and the fourth step. And Rick, the man who would become my sponsor, was sharing an incident about his life, and he was talking about people on the outside in his family looking in, judging his life. And he said, if people from their little perspectives could see what about my life, what I can see from my larger perspective, they would see that it's not happening like they think it is. I get that voice in my head, told me my life is not happening like I thought it was. Mm -hmm. I had never considered that. I go home and I sit down and I start to write inventory as laid out in the big book. First three columns, you know, who I'm angry at, what my story is, which is the story of why I'm angry, mm-hmm. what it affects, you right. know, my, my, my emotional well-being, my security, my relationships. So right. I'm laying this out. And then there's a fourth column, which so many people miss, where we look at our mistakes. Right. You know, the inventory is really like if anybody remembers who Paul Harvey was, Paul Harvey was a newsman and he would come on the radio and he would tell a great story. And then they would take a commercial break. And it usually left off at a good place. And they would come back, and then he would introduce, reintroduce himself, and then he would say, and now the rest of the story. Mm-hmm. And really that's what the fourth column is. It is the rest of the story right. that I conveniently leave out. Right. So I can, you know, because if you're like me, you get a story together, and you put it together in just the right way. Of course. You know, I minimize what I do. Correct. I exaggerate what you Absolutely. do. Absolutely. 
and I leave relevant information completely out because if I tell you everything, you may not agree with me. Right, and it may it may reflect poorly. Sure. On so me. I tailor my story just right, and I tell it to you, and you join in my wounds, and we hate the person together. That's correct. I've now recruited you. Yeah, I've now recruited you, and now I feel righteous in in my anger. I right. have justified anger. Correct. Yeah, which uh, is not <laughs> no. And so and so we join in my wounds, and we hate the people together. And what right. we've done is we've joined in woundedness rather than in strength. Right. Right. And so I sit down. I'm miserable. I hate how I feel. I need to see this differently. And one of the things was, you know, with my dad. So, you know, from this story that one of the stories I mentioned, I'm sitting down and I'm still thinking, how do I find my part? But here's the brilliant thing. The book doesn't talk about a part at all. No, it doesn't. In fact, it says very directly the opposite of that. The inventory, you know, the fourth column starts on page 67, but on the bottom of page 66, it says something really brilliant and wonderful. I know has to be God-inspired. It says, this is our course. We realize the people who wronged us were perhaps spiritually sick. Now, if you've had something horrible in your life happen, you've been raped or molested or beaten or something happened to you, that almost sounds offensive, like we're going to forgive crappy behavior on the part of somebody else. Oh, perhaps they're spiritually sick and Mm -hmm. somehow feel better about Mm -hmm. it. I was angry. I wanted to kill people, right? Mm -hmm. But here's where it's brilliant. The very next thing on the top of page 67 says this, though we did not like their symptoms, so we don't like the symptoms of how somebody's spiritual sickness appears, though we did not like their symptoms and the way these disturbed us, they, like ourselves, were sick too. Bingo. I had read that a hundred times and missed it. Yep. But in that moment, I heard that. Yep. You know, I heard it. Nobody who would treat another human being like that could be in their spiritual right and loving mind. Right. Exactly the thing that's at the bottom of page 66. They're just not. Right. So this is not saying that what people did, and in my case, my, okay. my dad, it's not about saying what they did was okay. Right. Because it absolutely is not. Right. But it is about saying that had he been in his loving and right spiritual mind, there's no way he could have treated you that way. Right. Now, I had these experiences, and I would cry crocodile tears. You know, Dad, you need to forgive me. I'm an alcoholic and Mm -hmm. an addict, and I can't help myself for the rotten, horrible things I've done in all my life, and you please forgive me, but I can't forgive you, you miserable prick. I hate you with every fiber of my Mm -hmm. being, right? Mm -hmm. So I've got all of this going on. The interesting thing is that line, they, like ourselves, were sick too, that's telling me that if I want forgiveness... I first have to give it. Do I want forgiveness and compassion and understanding for all of the dumb things I did in my own addictions and my own shortcomings in my relationships spiritually? Of course I do. Right. Well, in order to get that, I have to give it. Right. Interestingly, it says that in the Lord's Prayer, doesn't it? It does indeed. Forgive us our trespasses as as we we forgive forgive those who trespass against. And in in the St. Francis Prayer is really about that too, right? Better to, you know, forgive than be forgiven. Right. And so, yeah, so it's about, you know, for me, it's about love, right? If I give love, then I receive, then I get that back, right? Absolutely. If I forgive, then I get that back. And when you say that, you know, for me, it was... 
a big realization too in my four and five in terms of these other people that they were spiritually sick. And I never had, I had never entertained that. I had never entertained that somebody else could be perhaps sick that somebody else could perhaps be dealing with a spiritual illness. And sure, the they, were, first, they, were, they were just mean. They were just, they, yeah. They were horrible, they were horrible, they were horrible, horrible rotten human beings. Correct. How dare the world be inflicted with them? They couldn't possibly be. Right. So, But when I heard that... It was like, oh my God, I've hurt people too, and I'm spiritually sick. Exactly. And, I didn't, and, and I did things to people that I didn't want to do, that I didn't cognizantly know that I was doing. Sure. I operated... In in a way, in my relationships, that was selfish and hurtful. But I wasn't intending many times to hurt that person. But I ended up hurting that person because I was sick. Sure. And people did that to me as well. So you're right. If I wanted forgiveness for the things that I had done to other people, I certainly had to entertain the idea that I could forgive other people for being spiritually sick as well. Right. One of the interesting things that goes along with that, from my experience, this is not theory or something I've made up, it's from my experience. I remember, you know, having grown up Catholic, I would hear that saying, and you'll even hear it from non-Catholics all the time, people who want to, you know, just cram it up your rear end. They'll tell you, judge not lest ye be judged, right? Mm -hmm. I came to find out that in the Mao's experiences, it wasn't God that was judging me. It was me judging me by the way I was judging you. My judgment of you is my judgment of myself. Bingo. Because I can't see a problem in you unless it exists in some way in my life. Yep. So as I'm judging and hating on you, what am I really saying to myself? Bingo. I'm judging and hating myself, and I can't get out of the weight from my own judgments until I learn to give forgiveness. Interestingly, I want, I want to share this because I love history and different things, and um, we talk in the workshop about a man who wanted to learn Aramaic. He wanted to actually understand the language that Jesus spoke, the historical Jesus at the time that he was alive. Sure. The people of Judea spoke Aramaic, which right. is a form of Hebrew. So he went and studied this language, Aramaic, because he wanted to read the teachings of Jesus and the New Testament. In, in their original. In, in the yeah. orig original language. And he said, in the original Aramaic, now I can't, tell you that this is fact or not. I'm only reporting what he said. Mm -hmm. He said in Aramaic, the word forgive meant to change your mind. When it was translated into Greek, which is what was handed down to us right. through, through the ages, they didn't have an equivocal word. And it came out to pardon, which is what it was handed to us, to pardon. Mm -hmm. And it's like I mentioned earlier, pardoning is saying you are guilty and we're just going to kind of look we're going to let you way. off the hook, right? Right. Well, we never actually let you off the hook. We just sort of turn our back and kind of pretend it didn't happen. Right. Sure. And forgiving is completely different. If I'm changing my mind, right, that's very different. And that's an action. There's an active there's, component there's to that. Exactly. There, there's there's very active component to that. And in changing my mind, what I'm actually doing is I'm seeing you differently. I'm seeing your innocence rather than your guilt. Right. And as I begin... And your humanity, right? And your... your, your um, uh, yeah, your humanity, your, your... Well, it's actually our spiritual nature is innocence. Right. And the more that I can see your innocence or your spiritual nature, the more mine begins to emerge itself. As I see your innocence, I begin to see my own innocence. 
And guess what? I'm now seeing myself differently. I no longer feel that hatred and that judgment. Isn't that amazing? I don't feel that wallowing self-pity, that right. that idea, you know, depression and all of, you know, all of that stuff that was going on that was being medicated for started to lift and go away. It's amazing you're talking about that. Uh, you know, I was just talking about this in a previous interview and she asked me, you know, what um, you know, uh, you know, uh, what tools I use, um, and how, you know, recovery is today. And I said, you know, uh, uh, people are a big part of my recovery mm-hmm. and relationships and those kinds of things, but not in the way that it used to be where I used to sort of depend, if I depended on somebody and they failed me, I would exact, I, I'd want to exact revenge well, or punish them or, you know, retaliate. Right. Uh, because they failed me. Right. Sure. Because I considered that unacceptable. I also consider my own failure unacceptable, right? So but, but that it's, parallel there. Sure, but it's very easy because when we fail, we know where we hide the bodies. Right. When right. somebody else fails, we see the body and right. we just want to judge them. And so. we wanna, but today, I have people as an integral part of my life, but I know that at some point they'll probably f- fail. They'll, they'll, they'll do something, right, because they're human. And that's okay. Sure. That's okay. And you want to know why? Because I'm going to screw up too. And despite my best efforts, I, you know, I have the capability of failing, right, because I'm human. Right. And you know what? That's okay too, right? That's okay. And because I allow you to fail and I allow you the, the freedom to be human and to be fallible, I get to allow myself that same freedom. What an absolute gift. I don't have to be perfect. And that, you know, that whole false idea of perfectionism, that's the way that I live my life. I had these ideas, you know, people talk and I've heard people say alcoholics don't have morals. We have tremendous morals. And if you didn't live up to them, see, there's the thing. Bingo. I'm not living up to my own morals, but if you're not going to, I will hammer and judge on you. Absolutely. Yes. So. You know, so crucify you. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So I have that, you know, so I have that run through my head and I and that wall between what I did and what my dad did fell down. Mm-hmm. I had told stories all of my life to people. My dad's a very wonderful, outgoing, gregarious man. People genuinely like him. Mm-hmm. And I hated that. Mm-hmm. And so I had to tell you the story so that you would join my side right. and hate my dad with me. Yep. So I told people, I told his friends, his families, business associates, mm-hmm. school people, mm-hmm. counselors, therapists, all of these horrible things about my dad, mm-hmm. right? And, uh, you know, I, I didn't know being in, in ninth grade when I was telling these stories that, you know, they had to do something about it. Right. So I'm telling my, my counselor at school these stories and, you know, Dakota County Child Protection Services showed up at my dad's work one day and announced in front of the whole office he had to appear in court on charges of child abuse. Right. Boy, pretty nice way to treat a guy that's, you know, taking care of you your whole life. Yeah, huh? right. So so I, I start seeing this. Now, I, I mentioned part, and here's where I, I want to address that, because in the middle of page 67, it gets to the fourth column. Mm-hmm. And it says, the very first thing it says is, putting out of our minds the wrongs others had done, we resolutely looked for our own mistake. That's word for word in the big book. Mm-hmm. Put out of your mind. Well, if you're putting out of your mind, how does something have a part? It can't. Mm-hmm. If I'm still thinking you have a part, I haven't put you completely out of my mind. Right. And so what happened and what seems to often happen with people in this process is they take the idea of a part that we hear in meetings, 
subconsciously the brain knows if yeah. there's a part it's not a hole and right. automatically I have to looks look for, for my part. part I have to look for my part you hear that all the time I right. have to look for my part I have to look for my part yeah right and so I would continue to look for my part and I couldn't find one and I would stay stuck mm-hmm. I couldn't get past the anger right to find true forgiveness interestingly enough is a few sentences later it repeats the idea again you know, so, it, so the first one, you know, putting out of our minds wrongs others had done, and then it said, you know, disregarding the other person involved entirely. Mm-hmm. Well, if I am still looking at your part, I haven't disregarded you entirely. Right. Kind of odd. See, so I had missed that in the book. Right. I had gone with what the fellowship told me rather right. than what the book actually said to do. Right. And when I began to do that, and I looked only at my mistakes in my entire relationship with my father... Not just the parts that I was angry about or the stories that I told, but my entire relationship. Yep, so you're looking not just at these incidents that are fueling this resentment, right? And then looking for your part because there may not be a part for you in that that specific incident that is fueling uh, a lot of the resentment. But certainly if you look at the relationship as a whole, you can probably identify some things that you might have not done. I did. And the first question that it asks is, where had we been selfish? Okay, that seems to be the key to a whole lot of things, because on page 62, it tells us right at the top, it says selfishness, self-centeredness, that that we think think is the root of our trouble. Oh, wait a minute. You mean it's not drugs and it's not alcohol? Right. No. So the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12 steps as it's originally written doesn't give any power to that. In fact, a couple of sentences later, it says... It was an effect. It was a symptom. It's a symptom, yeah. exactly. So why do we sit around in meetings talking about not drinking right. when that's a symptom right. of the problem? Right. So I have to deal with this selfishness. Now, I had thought that I knew what selfish meant all of my life because a lot of people used it in conjunction with me and they would look at me and they would say, you are so selfish, <laughs> you don't think about dot, yeah. dot, dot, yeah, right. fill in the blank. If, you know? I, if I had a dollar for every time a woman called me a selfish a-hole, I'd be a very rich person. And I would think when they said that, I'm not selfish. Like I would, I, I would just, are you kidding me? Selfish? Absolutely not. Um, and when I did my fourth step, like you were talking about, you know, was this relationship selfish? And every single one of them was when I really thought about sure. it. It was about even when it was about you, it was about me, meaning like, you know, what you could do for me. Could you uh, or how you made me feel? I only cared about you when it affected me in some way. Otherwise, I really didn't care about you. I cared about what right. you did if it affected me. Well, and interestingly, so I thought I knew what it meant because they would always say, you know, you don't care about. So I thought selfishness had to do with caring. Mm-hmm. I'm not selfish. I care about other people. Mm-hmm. In fact, I care a lot. That's why, you know, as I mentioned before, that's why I do the things that I do and push away because I know I'm going to hurt you and I can't live with that. And you feel deeply. You feel intensely. But that's not what selfish actually means. Right. You know, part of the definition of selfish says that, you know, seeking or concentrating on one's own advantage, pleasure, or well-being without concern for others. So in the moments that I'm doing what I'm doing, I'm not concerned how it affects me or how it affects you or what ramifications may come because I'm so caught in self. Right. So when I saw that, it had nothing to do with being good or bad. Right. 
Selfish is just a fact. It's not good or bad. It's simply a fact. Mm-hmm. So I, the first question on that is, where have we been selfish, right? Acting without concern for others. Well, when I looked at it in that vein and began to write, <laughs> the amazing thing happens. See, at the bottom there, it says, you know, we ask God to help us see this differently. So I did. God, I hate how I feel. I need to see this differently. And I went into the fourth column and I began to write and I looked at my selfishness. Right. Where had I acted without concern for my dad? And I began to see that I lied to him constantly. Right. You know, I cheated. I told stories about him. I did all kinds of horrible right. things that right. you wouldn't do to another human being that you say that you love. Right. Okay. Right. So all of a sudden my list, you know, so the first column, I'm mad at my dad. What did he do? He beat me up physically, right? Mm-hmm. It affected all areas of my life. It affected right. uh, my security in the book. Security is always around financial means that it could mean emotional, emotional, yeah, but right. that's not how the book has it laid out. So it affected my, so, you know, my, my financial means. I couldn't keep a job. I hated every boss because they all reminded me of my dad. Um, it interfered with all my personal relationships with people because I didn't know how to have relationships. I needed to be the one getting on top of you. Right. Um, because I couldn't let you get one over on me. It affected my sex relations. I didn't know how to have relations with women because, you know, if my dad had been, you know, Ward Cleaver, he would have taught me these things <laughs> in, in a meaningful way that I could understand. And those things didn't happen. So it affected every area of my life. So I'm writing this down and all of a sudden I begin to see, I'm incredibly selfish. Look at all of this stuff I've done to this man. You know, then it asks, you know. Um, and this is this, this, this startling, and I had the same experience, like, oh, my God. Right. I am really selfish. Yes. Like, oh, wow, I had no idea how selfish I was. And it hit me in this sort of, uh, and there was a lot of ahas as I worked through the steps to the yep. big book, right? But mm-hmm. this was a big one. This was a monumental sure. aha for me that... Uh, perhaps, you know, if one person says you have a tail, eh, whatever. If two people say you have a tail, eh, you might have a tail. If three people say you have a tail, you have a fucking tail, right? And, you know, I had heard all my life that I was selfish, and it didn't jive with how I, th- how I viewed myself, like you were saying, right? It didn't jive, because I thought about people a lot. So well, clearly, I- if I thought about you a lot, that means I'm not selfish. But yeah. I didn't care for your, I wasn't, like you said, concerned about your well-being, I didn't express concern for you, right. and I didn't hold that as something that I actively, you know, um, uh, uh, operated within relationships. Um, so it was, yeah, it was very earth-shattering for me. Well, and and when you look up, and this was out of uh, Webster's Collegiate Dictionary for Selfish, is where I gave you that definition. The first part of that said, concerned excessively or exclusively with oneself. Right. All of my life, I have been concerned about me. Now, it looks like I'm concerned about other people because I have feelings about them. I think about them. I think about how they wronged me. I think about uh, how I missed them. Right. But guess who's involved in all of that? I. Me. I. Right. I. Right. I, so I'm not really thinking about them. <laughs> right. I'm thinking about me, but it looks good on the surface exactly. because I have another person involved. That's so right. I really am thinking excessively or about exclusively you. about me. Yeah. And I, you know, and isn't that really a perfect definition I found for my depression? Right. 
I was concerned excessively and exclusively about Bingo. me. And it doesn't look at it that way, but my depression really is, was just like a big eye looking at me. Yep. I'm concerned about how I feel, how people will think of me when I go yep. out. So I, I can't go out anywhere because people are going to judge me and I get anxious and nervous. And right. so I've got, all, but it's all based in me. But self. Yeah. And I, and, and this idea that, and nobody, I, I cared so much about how I felt. Right. I cared so much. It's why I drank. Exactly. It's why I anesthetized with drugs and alcohol because I cared so much about how I felt all the time. It's all I thought about. I hated it, but I but I loved it. Like I hated it. I hated that misery, but um, it's the only thing I knew. Like I only cared about how I felt and how you affected me and how you made me feel and how this made me feel and how that made me feel and. Um, I never thought that that was a form of self-centeredness, but it absolutely is. Oh, absolutely. And unfortunately, like I said, it, it often is misunderstood and talked about incorrectly within the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous or any of the 12-step programs for that matter, because that is the basis right. for our recovery is looking at, at the selfishness. Now, getting back you know, t- to the fourth column on the fourth step, the next one says, where were we dishonest? That's the second question in the in- resentment inventories, where were we dishonest? Mm-hmm. I thought, okay, you know, yeah, I lied. Who hasn't lied, right? Right. But see, dishonesty takes many different forms. And one of the biggest forms I found for me was manipulation. Sure. See, I found that I could tell my dad sad stories and try and manipulate him into fixing it for me. Right. So that's the second question. The third question is, where had we been self-seeking and frightened? Right. Because if I'm seeking for myself... I'm afraid I won't get what I want. Right. So I lash out and I do something to you first. Right. So as I fill all this out, I start filling this stuff out and the list is getting longer and longer. Yeah. And you start seeing patterns of, right? Sure. But, you know. Meaning, maybe not patterns as much as you start seeing a, 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 some common threads that are running through, right? A lot of common threads and they're all selfishness. But what's great is now I'm looking only at me. Right. Because as long as the problem lies outside of me and is you, what can I really do about it? Right. The only thing I can do is try to beat you harder into submission and right. you won't play your part so I get angrier and angrier. Right. Now if I'm just dealing with me, I can find a solution. I can change that. Right. I'm, so I'm looking at my mistakes. Right. Now, as I'm going through this, instantly I feel love and compassion for my dad. Because I see that he's not this horrible man that I made him out to be. Do you feel like like the, the this love and compassion and the and the resentment's just starting to melt away? No. They did not melt away. They exploded. <laughs> gone. Completely gone. Like an atomic bomb landed, blew everything up, mm-hmm. and it was just gone. Mm-hmm. Instantly gone, I feel relief. Mm-hmm. For the first time in my life, when I really felt love and compassion for him in that moment, yeah. that he was truly like me, a sick individual yeah. that had not found a way to change that, Right. And I felt compassion for him. And did you feel like he did the best he could with what he had at the time kind of deal? Like, look, it wasn't like he was trying to be horrible. He was doing the best he could. The second part of that is probably more true. The idea of, you know, oh, he did the best that he could seems to be kind of dismissive. Mm-hmm. You know, I often heard that from therapists and other people trying to fix my problem for me. Oh, they did the best they could. Well, fine. That may be they did the best that they could. But 
wasn't they, good enough. Could, yeah, it wasn't good enough. Right. I'm so selfish. It's not good enough. Yeah. I don't care that that's right. the best that you can do. Right. You it's should not have enough. done better. Right. Right. It yeah. wasn't enough. So all of that blew out. And then I got this. You're treating your dad exactly as he treated you. Mm-hmm. Now, for people who aren't familiar with this idea, you hear that and it's shocking. It's mm-hmm. how could that be? The guy kicked the crap out of a five-year-old. How mm-hmm. could you be treating him the same way? Mm-hmm. People see we confuse form for content. Sure. The right. form looks different. The content is the same. Sure. Now, what do I mean by that? When I looked at the first side of the sheet, my dad beat me up physically. When I looked at the back side of the sheet in the fourth column where I was looking at my mistakes, I beat him up emotionally, mm-hmm. mentally, mm-hmm. verbally. Sure. I was kicking the crap out of my dad. Yeah. He was kicking the crap out of me physically. I was kicking the crap out of him verbally and emotionally. The form of how we were abusing each other is very different. But the content in the end is exactly the same. We were both abusing each other. You were both inflicting this pain on each other. Exactly. And when I saw that, completely gone. Mm -hmm. The resentment is gone. It has never come back. Mm -hmm. It's not coming back. But that's a miracle. I mean, that's a miracle. I mean, how many times did you probably in your life, as you're mired in the resentment of your father, think, I'm going to go to the grave with this? I will never forgive that man. Always. And yeah. I used to have that saying that many of us have had, and you'll hear, hear in the rooms, yep. and you'll, you'll even hear it from normal people, I'll forgive, but I won't forget. Right. right. And in doing that, I have set myself up to do neither. Right. I have not forgiven, had a change of mind, and I have not forgotten. Right. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't remember the events. For sure. But it's the pain and the emotional Bingo. connection. That aren't attached. That aren't attached anymore. There's right. no heat there. Right. So I had that, and it, it just went And resentment out. means to feel the same it thing does. over and over and over again, right? So again, if you're not feel. feeling, mm-hmm. right, that, that, that pain anymore, and that, that's not attached anymore, then it's not resentment. No. Then it's a memory. It's a memory. Exactly. <laughs> you know? There is no, there's no <laughs> right. feeling to it. Right. So I have that, and as a result, some remarkable things have happened in my life. We'll be right back with the second half of Christopher's interview as we take a moment to explore a topic many of us may struggle with in recovery, acting on intense and overwhelming emotions. There were really two ways in which I dealt with emotions during my active alcoholism and addiction. To drown them in alcohol, or my drug of choice, or to act on them in a way that invariably made the situation significantly worse than it already was. One of the greatest lessons I have learned in recovery is the simple truth that I don't have to act the way I feel. As we discussed in episode 24's Recovery Revealed, the 12 steps allowed me to uncover the selfishness that dominated my life prior to recovery. A key element of my selfishness is that I care about the way I feel to, sometimes, a detrimental level. A level which makes it extremely difficult not to act on the emotions that I experience daily. In recovery, I have been given tools to help me deal with the powerful emotions that I can experience. As the big book states, a new freedom and a new happiness. This freedom is essentially born out of steps four through nine where I underwent a psychic and spiritual change so fundamental it changed the way I actually behave. Using tools like pausing and praying when I feel a sudden urge to lash out, mount a defense, 
or fall victim to any number of the character defects I uncovered in my four step actually allows me to not act on the intense emotions I had almost no control over in my active addiction and alcoholism. We are not saints and I am grateful that when I fail, I can forgive myself and admit where I had been wrong in my actions. Being in recovery means that I get to take responsibility for my behavior. I sometimes feel like what I want to do and what I know I should do are diametrically opposed to each other, even in recovery. My experience thus far has been that when I am acting in accordance to the will of the God of my understanding, my life goes better. When I act in a way that is in conflict with God's will, I tend to become restless, irritable, and discontented. The big book offers this suggestion. As we go through the day, we pause, when agitated or doubtful, and ask for the right thought or action. We constantly remind ourselves we are no longer running the show, humbly saying to ourselves many times each day, Thy will be done. We are then in much less danger of excitement, fear, anger, worry, self-pity, or foolish decisions. We become much more efficient. We do not tire so easily, for we are not burning up energy foolishly as we did when we were trying to arrange life to suit ourselves. It works. It really does. Now back to the second half of our interview with Christopher. I took a story I was absolutely certain that I was right about that was killing every aspect of my life. I said, I hate how I feel. I need to see this differently. And as I wrote inventory, as it's laid out in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, which is spiritual, not psychological. I had a spiritual and psychic change that changed how I saw my dad, which changed my relationship with everyone around me. If you are an atheist and don't believe in God, if you uh, have these issues, and you, you can absolutely do this without having to have that experience first. My life had been so miserable and so far off of what it should have been, God was going to one point take my son away from me when I loved him the most. If that's a loving God, why would he do that? Right. So I'm puking out this idea that God is loving and will never drop me on my head and is so good and yay, God. Right, right. And inside, I hate him. Mm-hmm. Yep. How yep. do I do it? So I can't. So I move on to the fourth step. I get the anger and the hate out of the way. Yep. When I got the anger and the hate out of the way by seeing my mistakes, all of a sudden, all three first steps fell in line just like that. I no longer hate every boss I have because they remind me of my dad and I can actually keep my jobs. Amazing. Amazing. You know, I've gotten some raises. How what? Did, yeah. Imagine that. Wow. A guy they always wanted to get rid of. I mean, <laughs> I, I knew my, I'm really good at my job. I really am. But he's a pain in the ass. I am just <laughs> such a pain to everybody around me <laughs> that, uh, I'll, and I'll give you an example of how that looks in here in, in a moment. I'll give you, a, and um, so anyway. You know, I've, I've got this going on. I no longer hate every, every boss. I feel love and compassion for people, particularly when they're making mistakes. I can see that it isn't them. Right. Okay? It's not them, and it's not a judgment of them as a person. They've made a mistake, just like I did. Do I want, again, like I said, do I want love and compassion and forgiveness for my mistakes? Of course. So now I'm much more willing to give that to people and I find that I'm not in conflict constantly with them right. over this stuff. And um, 
Now, I have a little eight-year-old boy, and my son is absolutely the light of my life. Mm. I mean, when I talk about him, my face lights up, my mm -hmm. whole being changes. I love this kid mm -hmm. more than any other human being on this planet, right? And I am so lucky. My son is an absolute daddy's boy. <laughs> loves to be around me, loves to talk to me, sit with me, do things. Uh, it's just a joy. It's an absolute joy. Now, my son is of, of the age, you know, likes video games, got the little handheld iPods, things like that, yeah. right? So when he was younger, he would make a game out of things and be playing his little games on his, on his iPod. And he'd stop and he'd look at me and go, Dad. I like you. <laughs> You're a really good dad. I love you forever, all the way to the moon and back. Right, dad? Absolutely. Why? I took a story I was absolutely certain that I was right about that was killing every aspect of my life. I said, I hate how I feel. I need to see this differently. And as I wrote inventory, as it's laid out in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, which is spiritual, not psychological. I had a spiritual and psychic change that changed how I saw my dad, which changed my relationship with everyone around me. As a result, I get to be a wonderful dad to my son, and I get a new childhood every time I'm with him through his eyes. Hmm. I get wonderful experiences with him. Yeah. I was able a couple of years ago to give my dad and my son an experience. My dad had given my son a couple Christmases ago a set of electric trains. I took him to where my dad was staying, and I let my son and my dad play with electric trains for a couple of hours by themselves. I never would have given that experience to the man that I absolutely hated, and I would have never been able to give that to the son that I love. Right. I healed my relationship with my son and my dad by fixing the resentment with my dad. I never intended for that to happen, Right. but look what happened. So I have these beautiful experiences that begin to happen. I can relate to that. You know, one of the things that uh, I, I was going to go to the grave um, hating my younger brother. Just going to go to the grave with it. I hated him with every fiber of my being. There was not a person in my mind that deserved to, uh, uh, you know, suffer a long, cruel death than that man. Hated him. Absolutely understand what you mean there. And it, it really took up a lot of my sort of headspace and space in my heart and soul. And as I'm going through the fourth and fifth step and understanding um, uh, the ridiculous self-centeredness that was uh, prevalent, uh, uh, that was pervasive, it was pervasive sure. in my life, and understanding that um, that in order to... Uh, move on that I needed to, you know, be rid of this stuff, right? Six and seven, like I had to be right. rid of it, right? Um, and I did step, <laughs> I'm like stalling on step eight. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, uh, a guy that's been sober for a very long time uh, looks at me at a step meeting and he says, you're stalling on step eight? Are you serious, dude? Take your step four, write down the names and you're done it'll take you five minutes right and and actually it's funny because you mentioned that that but people will say that all the time but the book actually says something slightly different in going into step eight the book says we have our list we made right. it when we took inventory <laughs> so 
I'm blown away by the fact that people actually think they need to sit down and write a new A right. step. Right. Now there are people we pick up that we don't have resentments against that we you know that For we sure. that that we add to this. But one of the things I, I I've never understood is in some kumbaya moment with your sponsor, you know, people go out and they talk about how they burned their four-step or they buried it in effigy. <laughs> I'm thinking, what are you, you doing? What are you doing? What are you you doing? Fool. You're you know, going to need that. Exactly. You're going to need that again because that is your list and your four-step is exactly the things you're making amends for. That's right. If I get rid of it, how do I remember? What the hell am I making amends for? Right. So no matter how much in my mind, but see, I can change my mind. I can't change the paper once I right. put it there. Right, so, right. So right, my right. the exact nature of my wrongs that are in the fifth step are are there in the fourth. So, uh, which let's get to that in just a second here. But you know, as I was saying, so I have these wonderful, beautiful experiences, right? And and my life has changed through through my son so much. But some other interesting things happened in doing that inventory and clearing away a lot of that wreckage of my past. Um. As, as we were talking yesterday, one of the things I mentioned that happened is that a year ago in October, my dad wasn't doing well physically. He developed uh, COPD and had some breathing difficulties and wasn't doing well physically. And um, my dad and I, in October, a year ago, October, we went out and we bought a house together and my dad has come to live with me. So this man that you hated all your life that beat you, that um, uh, you... Um, you know, that manifested in your life in s- several negative ways because you worked um, the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, you were able to forgive and you were able to uh, love this man. Yes. And you actually own a house with this man now? I do. Wow. And it has been one of the mo- the last year in that house with him has been one of the most amazing experiences of my life. Now, who would have ever thought that could happen while I was out there hating and hammering and judging on him? Certainly not me. Right. Right. What a gift. And when I talk to him, like if he calls me on the phone and we're talking about some things, at the end of the conversation, I can say, I love you. And I absolutely mean it. It's heartfelt and it's sincere. It's and not, it's not painful. No, but it, it's also not that thing, you know, that we do sometimes on the phone. Yep, yep, yep love, love you too. Yep, Goodbye. Love you too. Yeah, right. As a way to get them off the phone. Mm-hmm. I genuinely mean it. Now, I had another experience that, that just happened. And uh, as I mentioned, my dad hasn't, hadn't been doing well physically. And he got very sick this winter again with bronchitis from the COPD. And... Uh, got very sick and on the 20th of of December we took him into the ER because he he really could not breathe and didn't look well and uh, they had him hooked up to oxygen and all this other stuff and uh, he nearly died on Tuesday night and on Wednesday went into cardiac arrhythmia and they thought that he was going to stroke out and have a heart attack and um, the day before uh, I talked to the doctors and I told him, look, my, my dad hasn't been honest with you. He hasn't really been to a doctor in 30 years. He smokes too much, drinks way too much coffee, doesn't take care of himself. I really would like you to do a full panel and just check him out completely, right? The day before Christmas, they came back and the screens that they showed showed that my dad had lung and liver cancer. Wow. And... Uh, so they scheduled him for a biopsy. He went in for a biopsy that Tuesday, which was a, a couple of days after Christmas. And uh, the results came back the day before Thanksgiving. And they said that 
the metastasis of cancer in the liver is so invasive and pervasive that it's hopeless. There is no cure. And um, as we're sitting there and we got this news, uh, of course I was sad, but I didn't have this overwhelming feeling of loss, like, oh my God, I'm going to lose my dad. What can I do? I've... I cleared up almost all of the wreckage and I don't have any unfinished business with him. I could just be there for him and support him in love. Mm-hmm. And, we, you know, he, he's, he's got oxygen at home now. He's taking different medications. He just started chemo. And I've gone with him to all of these appointments and been there every step of the way with him, walking through this fear with him, you know, figuratively holding his hand as we walk through this experience. And the greatest thing about that is that I can do this all from an aspect of love and compassion rather than out of some hateful sense of duty that, God, I hate this man, but I have to do this for him, you know? What a beautiful gift that that has given me. I never could have found that had I not gotten to that point at 20 years losing everything I had and finding this idea of inventory and forgiveness in a spiritual manner that's laid out so beautifully in the book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I never found that through all the therapy I had, all the talking with counselors who had told me, you know, he did the best that he could. Yeah, I don't care. Mm -hmm. I didn't find it. But that moment that I went to God with this and got these ideas revealed that were true, that I knew somewhere in in my mind were true, it all went away. And I have these experiences, you know, now we're, we're doing the chemo and, uh, they said without chemo, he'd have three to six months with chemo, 10 to 12 months, maybe 18 months. What a gift. I get to spend this time taking care of this man and actually being somebody he can love and depend on rather than these two people at the end of their lives that are just hateful of each other that don't want to be there for each other. It changed so much. You know, and we were talking about the transition in in that and why I talk so fervently and lovingly and adamantly about this fourth step. And we talked about this yesterday, is that it's found in the chapter that's titled How It Works. Uh, Yeah, right, right. This is how How the program works. works, is the third and the fourth step, particularly the fourth. And everything we do is based from that point on is based off the fourth step. And the third step is so important. Why? Because if I don't have a power that I can rely upon, a higher power that I can rely upon, how on earth am I going to do a searching and fearless moral inventory? And that's interesting that you bring that up because you actually can. And and from my own experience, I know that that is possible. Without a higher power. Without a higher power. If you are an atheist and don't believe in God, if you uh, have these issues and you you can absolutely do this without having to have that experience first. I know I couldn't have. I know I for myself personally, and I'll and I'll and I'll take that as a personal thing. I know for me personally, there's no way I could have made a searching and fearless moral inventory without a higher power. But I'll show you how I'll show you how this worked for me. And so if you have this problem, look at my experience. And if you if you're one of those that have this block to God, right, or believe, but don't really believe, right. or you're an atheist or an agnostic, I'll show you from my own experience how that can work. But what I wanted to say was that, you know, everything we do in the program from there forward is based on step four, and people don't even realize it. We argue about what step is the most important. 
I think it's probably three and four because it's in the tie. It, it's in how it works. And right. like I mentioned to you yesterday, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous does not specifically mention steps one and two, except for on page 59 when it's listing the steps. Yes, right. And then therefore being convinced, right? Right. And then after we read through it, portion of chapter five, which most people hear, A, B, and C, you know, A, that we're alcoholic and could not manage our own lives, that really is a rewording of step one. Correct. B, that no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. That really is a rewording of step two. Correct. And then it says, C, that God could and would if he were sought, which is step two and a half. It's a lead into step three. Right. The very next sentence in the book of Alcoholics Anonymous says exactly what you started. Being convinced. So being convinced that A, B, and C in my life are true at this point, we are at step three. Right. Then it says, just what do we mean by that? And just what do we do? And as we started talking very early, there is an action in turning my my ideas over that. Right. But so getting so this I, I, I don't mean to jump back and forth, but this this idea of step four. So we go through step four and step four says, you know, made a a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. And in step four, the language is changed when you read it in the book. Mm-hmm. It says, you know, that we, uh, you know, we. They can like it to a business. And, and taking, taking a fact finding. Stock, right, right, right. Taking a fact finding, fact facing, truthful inventory. That's what the book says. Fact finding. Searching. Mm-hmm. Fact facing. Fearless. Right. So And so, Bill likes to do that. Bill doesn't like to use the same words over and over it, again. No, so, he, he doesn't. Right. So he likes to vary the words, but they mean the same thing. So I'm finding, so I go through this fact-finding, fact-facing, truthful, moral inventory, right? Right. Okay. So then in doing that, it also talks about, you know, in the fourth column, it says, it said, the exact nature of our wrongs. Mm-hmm. What does it say in the fifth step? <laughs> said uh, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Isn't that amazing? Yes. The fourth step tells you you're going to find the exact nature of your wrongs, and then in the fifth step it tells you that you got to reveal these things, right? Right. So, so how do you how do without the the aid of a higher power how do you reveal something in front of God in sure. step five? So, so I'll be interested so to let, see how let that me, goes. Let me finish the, this thought. So. In step four, that's what we do, right? Mm-hmm. Step five, we're revealing the exact nature of our wrongs that we found in step four. Right. Step six says, became willing to have these things removed. Right. What things? The things that I found objectionable in four. Right. Seven says, we humbly ask him. Right. To remove these things. Not myself. Right. People who talk about, I'm working on my character defects. <laughs> that's how I got to AA, was working on my exactly. character defects. I'm yeah. not supposed to do that. Yeah, it's I like, let him I do those. Like, I got to work on that. I'm like, oh, God. Uh, yeah, no. no, no, no. So... Seven says that we humbly asked him to remove those defects I found in four. Right. Eight is I is making a list. So that is the list of people I made when I took inventory. Mm-hmm. Step nine is I'm making amends for the things that I found where I was wrong in inventory. Mm-hmm. Step 10 says, you know, continue to take personal inventory. And step four is described as a personal inventory in that chapter. So step 10 really says continue to do four. Right. 11 says that we sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious con- improve our right. conscious contact with God, which really 
in step four, it talks about it. It says that we're removing the things that blocked us from an experience of a higher power. Yeah, the sunlight of the spirit, right? right? So yeah. step 11, I'm continuing this relationship that I discovered by removing those things in step these four. Blocks, the these fear blocks and the anger right. and the resentment exactly. and all that. Yep. And then step 12 says, having had this spiritual awakening as a result of doing four to remove the things that kept me from God, right. I go out and I share that experience. And continue to practice right. these principles. So right. everything I do in the in this program sure. is wholly based off on, on, on what and I And that's will, where the change happens, right? right? So yeah. there's this old timer that says, if you, he's famous for saying this, if you don't change, your sobriety date will, right? And the change... It can. You know, happens, and, and, and sometimes it doesn't, and maybe you're miserable I'm, or whatever. I'm a perfect but, example of right, that. that right. I not, things didn't change. My sobriety didn't change, but I was absolutely miserable, miserable at 20 years sober, That's which right. is not the promise of the program. <laughs> no. Now, how do you get to that point, right? Right. Is, is the logical step that we're talking about. Okay. So step one says that we admitted that we're powerless, right? Mm-hmm. And that our lives are unmanageable. Right. Now, so we don't have the power to, to, we're powerless. We don't have the requisite power in and of ourselves right. to be able to um, overcome uh, so the So I disease. could admit that I was powerless over alcohol when I introduced it into my body. Right. I am certainly not powerless when it's sitting on a shelf at the liquor store. Right. Because it has, it's not, but so when I introduce this, this stuff into my body, I am powerless over the effects that it has on me, right? Oh. Yeah, okay. then that's not the only thing I'm powerless no. over, but yes. Well, right, but in in that context, so I'm powerless over alcohol, and my life is unmanageable. Because in that scenario, that's like for me saying, hey, um, I'm powerless over, what, I'm allergic to strawberries, and when I have strawberries, I uh, my leg gets really uh, swollen, and I turn blue. Yep, you're powerless and over the effect I, of that. That's right, I'm powerless mm-hmm. over the effect of strawberries, but I don't go to Strawberries Anonymous. Because I just don't eat strawberries, right? And I don't talk about, you know, in in restaurants like, oh, God, I hope they don't bring strawberries around here because I won't be able to resist. So my powerlessness really isn't over what happens when I drink as much as what happens when I don't drink. Well, and again, that's one of the things that we talked about, that that's not even the problem. Right. So because in step one it mentions that, it looks like that's the problem. But alcohol isn't the problem. No. Isn't the reason we go to alcoholics and Correct. Okay, so in step one, I'm admitting that that I'm powerless, which, okay, I can accept that. But for me, my life was unmanageable. As goofy as, and absurd as it looked to everyone around me, paying my bills color-coded, you know, if it's, if it's black, I got another 30 days to pay it. If it's red, I got to pay it immediately, okay? Same people don't do that. They just pay their bills when they come. Right. Okay? Same people don't end up sleeping in the garbage room of their condo association because... They've lost their keys or they've gotten kicked out. Right. Okay. So as goofy as my life looked to everybody else, it made perfect sense to me in that moment. So my life wasn't really unmanageable in my way of thinking. Okay. Then step two says, you know, that we, that uh, step two says, came to believe that a power green in ourselves could restore us to sanity. Mm-hmm. Okay. Came. Right. Came is past tense. Yes. It doesn't say, I have to believe before I move forward. It says came. It doesn't even tell us when that has to happen. Sure. And it, it, it advises us to move through to the next step. So I come up to step three. Yeah, came is this active sort of like, you know, it doesn't say have come. Right. Right. To believe. Come is active. Came is passive. Right. Past tense. 
So came to believe, well, how do I believe? I have this problem, right? Mm -hmm. So I look at the third step. The third step says, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over the care of God as we understood him. Mm-hmm. At now, this present moment. At this, at this present moment. Right now, right, right now. here, whatever concept, however limited it might be. Well, see, but see, that's, that's the difference. In, because the step says understood. Now, in fairness to people who talk in meetings about a God of their understanding, the book also in later points does talk about a God of your understanding. But the step does not. The step says understood. And when you look up understood, it's past tense. It implies, therefore, an experience. Right. So step three, I'm turning my will in my life over to an experience that I've had. Now, if I can't relate to God, I can probably relate to love, even though I may not feel it or give it. I know what it's supposed to look like. Even if I'm afraid of it. Even if I'm afraid of it. Right. (laughs) So if I can do that... Right. Uh I have this idea of love. Okay, I can get in alignment with love. Sure. But for me, how was I going to find this experience if if understood as past sense and as experience? Right. Mm -hmm. How am I going to find this experience of love with a head full of hate and a heart full of anger? Right. I couldn't. I absolutely couldn't do that. But I didn't worry about it. I did what the book said. Next, we launched into a course of vigorous action. Mm-hmm. I didn't believe as everyone else believed. I would sit in meetings and puke out this idea of, right. oh, God's loving and wonderful. Right. And and I, didn't, I didn't want people to know I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Right. So, <laughs> you know? so I'm talking about this beautiful, loving, wonderful God, right? But the experience in my life up to those points were absolutely this. I took no joy in the pregnancy of my son because I knew intuitively in my heart that when my son was born, my life had been so miserable and so far off of what it should have been, God was going to one point take my son away from me when I loved him the most. If that's a loving God, why would he do that? Right. So I'm puking out this idea that God is loving and will never drop me on my head and is so good and yay, God. Right, right. And inside, I hate him. Mm-hmm. Yep. How do I do it? So I can't. So I move on to the fourth step. I get the anger and the hate out of the way. Yep. When I got the anger and the hate out of the way by seeing my mistakes, all of a sudden, all three first steps fell in line just like that. Yep. Yep. I can relate to that. I wiped the slate clean the same way when it came to the power greater than myself. I just said, you know what? I'm just going to wipe it clean. And pretend I don't know anything about it. Sure. Pretend I don't know. Pretend, you know, I used to, in my in my 20s, used to, you know, um, uh, uh, preach, you know, uh, about, you know, you know, spirituality and, you know, um, and, uh, and then I would, uh, um, uh, you know, relate it to myself and have this ever uh, sort of overriding feeling of hate and anger and not want anything to do with that God. But, you know, my desperation gave me the ability sure. and willingness to just wipe it away. It didn't matter anymore. It didn't matter. Whatever. I'm good. I'm going to wipe this slate clean, and I'm going to just do what the next thing is that right. uh, it, it, my sponsor says to do, which is in the book, and we're just going to keep going. We're going to keep going, and we're going to keep going, we're going to keep going. And it didn't make sense a lot at the time. I don't even tell people to do the next right thing, because when I'm in my moments, or particularly when I'm new, 
how the hell do I know what the next right thing is? Well, and all I know is what's in front of me. So I, you know, when it. I talk to people, I tell them, well, just do what's in front of you. Mm-hmm. So I write, so I have this experience. Now I sit down, I start to write the inventory. And as I write the inventory, as it's laid out, looking only for my mistakes, not a part of anything, mm-hmm. but my mistakes as a whole, all of a sudden my mind changed. When my mind changed, I started having this feeling. It must have been love. Mm-hmm. Now, all of a sudden, right, I mentioned that steps one, two, and three fell in. By looking at how insane my life was in the fourth step, all of a sudden, that second part of the first step that I couldn't identify where my life was unmanageable, I began to see my life really was unmanageable, mm-hmm. despite how the fact that I didn't think that it was. Right. After I did that and got those spiritual blocks out of the way, I started to believe. Right. And as I started to believe and have these experiences... I realized I could turn my will in my life over to that and that it would absolutely 100% take care of me. So for me, I didn't come to believe until after I did inventory. Right. Truly. I mean, I gave lip service to it, but I didn't truly believe or experience it until I did inventory. Once I did that, for me, the first three steps fell in line. And that is how you can move through this program, even with an identity crisis in God or not believing and still be successful in it, my own experience for me shows that. So when I work with new people, I say, don't worry about it. Let's just move on. I hate it when I hear people say, oh, my sponsor told me I need to write out some dissertation on steps one and two. And, right. you know, I gotta, that, that I got to come to believe that I'm insane and can move on. And, you know, we were talking yesterday about that idea of insanity. Mm-hmm. And you'll hear this often in meetings and people will say one definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over, expecting different results. Right. I'm a thinker. I heard that and I thought one definition of sanity must then therefore be doing the same thing over and over, expecting the same results. Right. Predictable results. Yeah. And if I can get up today and wake up in the morning and get right with that, that vertical, Mm -hmm. uh, relationship, which would be between me and and God, and put myself in a position to be of service and help, because that's what it asks us to do really in the third step when you you break it down. If I can do that, and I manage my my day fairly successfully, and at the end of the day, I don't hate everybody and want to kill them, guess what? If I get up tomorrow, and I put myself in the same mindset by doing the same actions... I bet I'll probably be successful tomorrow if I was successful today. And I have been able to do that and string together this and have these wonderful, beautiful experiences. That's why step three was so powerful for me. And I think that's great because I think for people that do have that, you know, sort of block and they just can't get past it or get around this idea of a higher power Mm -hmm. and feel like, well, I can't move on if I can't get step three. And then we get drunk, right? Or we use again, right? Because we can't get through the inventory and we then we don't remove the blocks of God and then, you know, whatever. So we need to get through that piece for me. Uh, my sponsor was very sort of like, okay, step three. And he says, um, you know, what's different? What's changed? Now that you have turned your will in your life over to the care of God, what what has changed, right? Mm-hmm. How, are you, how are you different? Um, and you need to, you know, act that way, right? Um, and it was all about being of service and being helpful. Right. And for me then, I began to have this, this different experience now, right? My life experiences were dramatically different than they were previously. So I had made this decision. Then I started being of service 
to God and to the people around me, step three. And my experience was radically different than I had anything that I've ever experienced in my life before. Sure. And that, for me, was my spiritual experience, my awakening, as it were. Right. Right? That, then and there, I had my awakening. And that said, I'm doing something actively that's making a tangible difference in my life. It's making a real difference in how I feel and how my life is going, right? Mm -hmm. It's amazing. Yep. It's amazing. And all I was doing was acting, making actions, right, that were consistent with what I thought, what I believe God's will for me is based on things like the third step prayer, St. Francis's prayer, you know, those kinds of things, that, that ability to just be of service and selfless. Sure. And the great, like I said, you know, the great part about the third step prayer, as you read in the book, it has to be relieved of the bondage of self. Right. Often people will think, yeah, relieve me of the bondage of self. That way I feel better. Right. But that's not what the prayer says. It actually says, relieve me of the bondage of self. So that I'm, you know, may better do thy will. Right. Um, that it actually says that I may bear witness to, to those, those I would help. See, of thy power, thy. Right. Yeah. The third step really is about being helpful. Right. So I don't have to worry about the idea of God and that I believe the way they believe or my sponsor or my AA group or anyone else. All I really have to do is say, okay. I will put myself in a position to be helpful to another human being so I stop thinking about myself for one hour. And in doing that, I have aligned my harmony with God and I didn't even realize it. Bingo. And, th and then I, you know, and then... And I then I have this have experience. other experience. Now, I, I can tell you in one sentence how I came to believe. I can't tell you when that happened, but here's how it worked for me. I took actions I didn't believe in and I got results I couldn't deny. I took action in the fourth step, right. and all of these things began to happen that I couldn't explain away. Right. I was getting jobs when I wasn't looking for them. Right. I got raises I didn't probably actually deserve. How do you explain those things away? I can't take credit for this. Who's doing it? Right. Somebody, you know, there had to be a power greater than me that was making these things happen, and I no longer cared what that concept was. I began to see the results by doing the action, and then I could, and then I could found that I could turn my life over to that because it was okay. Right. The interesting thing is that in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, after we go through steps one through four, going into the and 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 actually in, into the fifth, the book specifically says, looking at the first five proposals. Right. The book specifically tells me. In that sense, don't worry about the results of the first four, first five steps, actually. Right. If I go through this, I then take a moment and I look back and I reflect on the first five proposals and find out, am I on solid ground? <laughs> and if I've done what it's asked me to do, right. I will absolutely be on solid ground and I can move forward without this block of this idea of God. Right. So that's how these things happen for me. And there's a lot of people that come through our workshop, including my sponsor was a militant atheist when he did when he did this. And I don't mean just the guy who, you know, says I don't believe in God. He actually tells stories about how he would invite Jehovah's Witnesses into his house 
so that he could, and so that he could hammer on them, and they would <laughs> run screaming down the street. Now these are loving, you know, regardless of how you feel about their religious thing, these are wonderful, loving people for sure coming to carry a message, a message. of spiritual yep. hope right. to mad people. Yep. Yep. So you know, those are the things that that began to change. Now, on this idea of this spiritual awakening that goes along with this, you know, we were talking a little bit yesterday, and for me, a couple of beautiful things happened. As I started having these experiences and trying to be helpful, these things began to manifest in my life. And one of the things, uh, when my son was about three, we'd come out of the grocery store. And when we came out, he didn't want to hold my hand to go across the parking lot. You know, there's cars coming, and of course, you want your children to be safe. Of course. So telling him, you know, you need to hold my hand. No, Dad, I don't want to. He's a little bit willful. I think he, he might get that from his mom, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, I always try to blame the <laughs> yeah. all the bad all the bad behaviors yeah, yeah. on mom. Yeah. We all get things from our paternal and maternal sides. Exactly. And I put that on his maternal. <laughs> no, actually, I, I'm quite willful also and could see that as a kid. But So eventually I told him he needed to hold my hand, and he did. And we walked across the parking lot, and when we got to the safety next to my car and I let his hand go, I got that voice in my head and it said, you've just experienced step three. It is putting your hand in mine and walking from a place where you are unable and unsafe to a point where you can do this on your own. Right. And I have never had a problem with the concepts that our ex- people talk about in step three. As a result of doing that and the inventory and other things, I began to have other miraculous things happen that I can't explain away. And one of the great AA speakers, and his name escapes me now, but he always talks about your job as you work through the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous is not to judge the process, no, but to judge the results. So your job is to do what the program asks of you and then judge the results. Well, if I don't understand the process, the judgment I'm making isn't correct anyway. Right. So, so judge the results. Right, and judge it, the and results. And you can then judge if this program of action is doing what you could not do for yourself. Sure. Right? And, and it did. My son came over later that year, and he was staying with me. And he had his own bedroom, but at, at three, and you know, his mom and I had split up. He wanted, he liked the safety of staying with me. And he, Dad, can I sleep with you tonight? Mm-hmm. I usually, so I usually tell him yes, of course. And he was in my in my room and sleeping, and the lights were out, and the the shades were drawn, turned closed, and this was really like, you know, a movie scene. Through the little cracks in the shades, mm-hmm. the moon was shining through the window, and actually had his face lit. Mm-hmm. And he's sitting there, and my son had really chubby cheeks when he was young, so he's laying there, and he's peaceful, and he's got these fat little cherubic cheeks, and I'm looking at him, and I thought, where do you go when you sleep? What thoughts are running through your head? You look so beautiful as I look at you. I wonder if God ever feels about me the way that I feel about you. And that voice came back in my head, and it said, yes, every time I see you, I feel exactly the way that you do right now. Hmm. And I've continued to have these types of experiences. Sure. They were happening all my life. Right. I just was ignoring them. Right. You know, I had on these spiritual blinders and these whatever, something oh, in it was my an act- ear. Yeah, so like for me, it was an active I, thing. I, I it wasn't even like, oh, I'm blind to it. It was like an active, like, I don't want anything to do with you. Blind my ass. Right. I, go f- off. Right. Like Will, willful denial. Yeah, exactly. Willful rejection. Mm-hmm. You know, like, you know, I, I and I get that. I mean, everybody has a different relationship with God. Right. I was not blind to God. I was uh, actively rejecting his ass. 
uh, because um, I hated him. I wasn't blind to God either, but I do think that I was blind to many of the things that went on. I mean, you know, I'm running late for for a job interview that I really want. I really want this job, right? I'm running late. I hit every green light and I arrived two minutes early, mm-hmm. even though I know it takes me six minutes longer to get there than it should have. Right. How did I get there on time? It's a spiritual experience that I wanted to ignore. Mm-hmm. When I'm out there and somebody teaches me something and I feel that moment of gratitude, like, you know, people know what it's like to give something to a child just because you want to give it out of love. And you watch their reaction and they are so happy and they run away. That's a spiritual experience. But see, I wanted to deny. Right. So I had on blinders to those things for me. Yes, I willfully wanted to ignore God and say, but every time one of these would happen, sure, you I would was blind be, to it, wanted right. to explain it away with some other form Coincidence or whatever, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I was blind yeah. to these things. Yeah. And I could relate to that. I just got into a ridiculous car accident that, uh, um, you know, I was inches away from being completely obliterated by a, um, by an Acura SUV. And coincidences don't, coincidences are not a term I use in my life anymore. I just no, don't. either. Uh, it, it one inch the other way, and I would have been obliterated. And uh, I got to walk away from that sober. Okay? Sure. If I was drunk like I was nearly every day at the end, I would have been in prison. I'd be in jail right now. And um, it, it, so for me to be able to walk, not only just walk away from an accident like that where my car's completely totaled and only have, you know, some minor aches and pains and to be able to walk away from that sober, sober is an absolute miracle of this program and that my first thought afterwards you know wasn't where do i how do i numb my pain how do i go oh god i hope they don't give me a breathalyzer exactly yep and how do i numb this feeling of fear and uh of you know it's a it's a it's a traumatic experience to go through that right um and my first it wasn't even it was it didn't even enter my it didn't even enter my brain and somebody asked me like wow why didn't, how is that possible? An act as somebody that uh, is a recovering alcoholic, his first thought after a traumatic experience isn't drinking? How does that happen? It's been removed. It's just, it's been removed. Sure. The, the, and you mentioned very early, you know, that alcohol isn't the problem. We talked a little bit about that, and it actually was the solution. Correct. You know, it was the medicine. That's it correct. took care of the problem and fixed it. Correct. Until it didn't fix it anymore. And you said the problem. Yeah. It took care of the problem. Yeah. Well, now something else is taking care of the problem. Exactly. So I don't need alcohol. But the funny thing is, is with alcohol, which I thought was the solution to my problems, my problems never really went anywhere. No, they didn't. The moment, And those nights that I would sit in my bed by myself, you know, I'd get that, hi, this is your head. I'd like to talk to you yes. for a few hours. Yes, I've got oh. you alone. Yes, I've got you alone now. Excellent. Yeah. Yes. Great. So... Right, so now the solution is something completely different, and um, I, for me, I've found that it has been able to actually resolve all of these things in my life. When I'm, when I'm feeling fearful, when I'm uncertain of, of things, you know, I'm tied to my past. Right. All of that stuff, it, it are even things in the future, when I'm trying to anticipate the future, it's based off a of past experience. Correct. So I'm dragging the past with me constantly. Well, what do we tell people? Live in the now, right? Right. Right. Well, I'm never in the now. I'm constantly in gone places. I'm in the future. I'm in the past. Not present in the moment. And I'm not alive. Right. So if that's happening, I'm creating a problem rather than a solution. 
in 30 seconds or less. Here's your challenge. In 30 seconds or less. Yeah, those who know me know I can't do much in 30 seconds, so that might <laughs> be a challenge. challenge. The, the, the name of the podcast is The Way Out. And we talked about being in that forest and uh, seeing no way out, right? Um, uh, and and uh, tell me, for somebody who's in the forest right now, and that's, ta- that, 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 that's heard this and says, that can't be me. I can't do that. Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, that's great for you, but not for me. Sure. 30 seconds or less, speak to that person. The only thing that I could tell them would be my experience. And my experience was that I was absolutely lost and as hopeless as you feel right this very moment. And when I did what I didn't believe could work, and it worked even though I knew it couldn't for somebody like me, and it wouldn't, and it did anyway, it absolutely changed my life. What do you have to lose? Really, what do you have to lose? You know, you're in this darkness. If it doesn't work, you're no worse off than you were before. But if you try this, I guarantee you, it will change and it will work. That is the rub. If I truly make this a part of my life, it has to work. There's no way it can fail. And your life will absolutely change. And you will have these remarkable experiences and a life you never could have imagined. And then I would look at him and I would say, welcome home. You never need to feel this way again if you choose not to. If you want to reach out to Chris, please email the Way Out Podcast at share at wayoutcast.com. That's share at wayoutcast.com. And I will be sure to pass the message along to Chris. Chris, thank you so, so much for being a part of the oh, Way Out Podcast. It was a pleasure. I enjoyed it. It was really great. And um, I, I learned a lot uh, just uh, being a part of it. So thank you, brother. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being a part of The Way Out, where we share stories from people just like you who have recovered from alcoholism and other addictions. If you would like to reach out to the show, you can visit us on the web at wayoutcast.com. That's wayoutcast, all one word, dot com. Or drop your host a friendly email at share at wayoutcast.com. There you can also find links to previous episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podcast Garden. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the podcast, contact me at share at wayoutcast.com. See you next time. And remember, if you don't change, your sobriety day will.